David, news came out today that BuzzFeed has bought HuffPo. <laughs> what I want to know is what other odd journalism mergers would you like to see? Guys, is this like internet 3.0 buying internet 2.0, or do I have my? Is that is that? I don't even know where my where what eras of the internet I'm even dealing with here. It really reminds me. Remember when all the fast food restaurants started pairing up? And it was oh, like, yeah. oh, it's Taco Bell and Pizza Hut, or <laughs> it's Long John Silver's and A and W. I didn't really want to go to either one of those, but now they're together. <laughs> um. Do you hear the thing that the, the the rumor that Long John Silver's is like a front for the cornbread mafia? I, I, I've <laughs> got just go down to that add. rabbit. Go, just go down that rabbit hole one night. Um, <laughs> the uh, or like when Carl's was at Hardee's bought Carl's Jr. but didn't actually give up on the Carl's Jr. name because it had so much more value than the Hardee's name. So they're still like they kind of have the same logo, but there's different sign. That might be where we're headed here. HuffPo's not going to go away. It's not going to supplant BuzzFeed News. But maybe they'll have a similar little smiley star in the upper right-hand corner. Can we bring back some of those like vintage HuffPo bloggers? Remember when they had the celebrities and pseudo-celebrities at the beginning and make them all into BuzzFeed staff writers? Are they all gone? I literally have no idea. Who? What's the dude's name? The guy from the from all the uh, Christopher Guest movies and The Simpsons and stuff? Oh, Harry Shearer. Yeah, Harry. Is he still is he still a blogger? Yeah, he's covering the White House now for for BuzzFeed. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Sheer and Ruby Kramer are going to be filing political dispatches. Uh, I cannot wait. Coming up on today's show, Barack Obama writes a very long book. We answer your Lister mail, plus Claire McNear talks Jeopardy. All that and more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus. View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. David, we got a doorstop of a presidential memoir this week. Barack Obama has published A Promised Land, his 768-page book. And in 768 pages, Obama doesn't even get us halfway through his presidency. Even Robert Caro thinks Obama's being a bit of a completist. Oh, man. Well, I would make a George R. R. Martin joke, but I feel like it's just going to end up being a slight on George R. R. Martin for not having written anything. So not having pages. Barack Obama has pages. I think we can, we can say that with confidence. He filed as we say in journalism. Uh, and it was, and it was very clean copy. It is, it is, it is quite well-written. Can I give you a sense of just what an event book this is? I called the indie bookstore. I like here in orange County on Tuesday morning, like an hour after they open and they were already sold out. It was completely sold out of the Obama book. What? So, so I went to Barnes and Noble and I got a copy and I walked up to the cashier and gave her my credit card. And she said, Oh, let me get you your poster. 
this is not a joke, and then handed me a poster of Barack Obama, which was my gift for buying the book. I don't think I've received a poster as a throw-in to a separate purchase since, like, <laughs> what would that? I mean, I think there was like a like a those uh those muscle men action figures. I think if you bought a certain number, came with a free poster. <laughs> right? Was, if you there went ever, to was there ever <laughs> that that right week in the summer, and you got like a Batman water glass? Yeah, the, the poster thing does seem very specific. Like, I feel like I must have bought an album that like you got a poster with it or something. If you bought it, if you went and got an opening day from Tower Records or something. But yeah, that 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 certainly marks this as an event. There's no doubt about it. David, you sent me Obama's very conventional author bio earlier in the week. Do you oh, want to read this? Hold on. Let me pull it up here. All right, here we go. Barack Obama. <clears throat> sorry. Barack Obama's name, of course, is in bold. Barack Obama was the 44th president of the United States, elected in November 2008 and holding office for two terms. He is the author of two previous New York Times bestselling books, Dreams of From My Father and The Audacity of Hope. Okay, and the can recipient we just hold on right a- there for a second? <laughs> okay, are, we, okay. are we targeting the customer who is walking into the bookstore like they you know, look at a Clive Cussler book or a Lee Child book in the front display and go, oh, New York Times bestseller, huh? Well, I don't even think Clive Cussler, Clive Cussler and Lee, Char- Lee Child are the argument for not doing it, right? Because who cares what awards they've won? What matters is this, how high the stack is and what your mom told you about the book and that you should read it, right? <laughs> I mean, you're familiar enough with the name that you don't need the New York Times' sign-off on, on this purchase, right? One would think that anyone who gives a one solitary damn about the New York Times bestselling bestseller status, all they need to know are the first two words of this author bio, right? And those are Barack and Obama. Yeah. Nobody's like, I'm going to give this Obama a chance. He's really sold a lot of books. <laughs> anyway, right, sorry, going to keep going. Uh, he's a, the author of two previous New York Times bestselling books, Dreams of My Father and the Odyssey of Hope, and the recipient of the 2009 Nobel Peace Prize. I would just like mm. to establish that is not... I don't want to read any ill motives onto whoever constructed this author bio, but putting it, having the two books, the New York Times bestselling books, and then comma, and the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize sort of makes it sound like he won the Nobel Peace Prize for writing these two books or one of these, like like it is a, like as if it's a literary prize, but no, it is completely separate from this. It was won as part of, as as a measure of his presidency and, and the accomplishments in the first year. Um, let's move on. Uh, Nobel Peace Prize incense. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife, Michelle. They have two daughters, Malia <laughs> and Sasha. Um, yeah, I, I just I just cannot. There's so many funny things about book publishing, so many things that are particular to book publishing. Uh, it will never not be humorous. When you take somebody as famous as Barack Obama, whose author bio, again, could be two words or non-existent, and you actually go through all of the motions to say he lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife and two children. I mean, like, it, it, it has to say, it has to, it, it's a most singular book that's going to come out this year in so many ways, and yet everything about it has to be just fit in the, the comfortable lilt of of book jacket copy. <laughs> Are you surprised he didn't put the dog Bo in the author bio like yes. a lot of... <laughs> authors yeah. do are yeah. you also surprised he didn't do like the funny sentence at the end that we sometimes get when you have an author bio <laughs> yes yeah uh or also just the i mean 
there's sort of the, maybe maybe this is more of a Twitter bio thing, but the thing where you're just like overly specific about your significant other, right? He lives in Washington D.C. with his wife Michelle, the former first lady of the United States of America, or something, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we all know who Barack Obama is. I pre- in case you picked this up and were confused, it might be a different Barack Obama. Then you you can you can read down to the end and be like, oh yes, I remember Sasha, if not the <laughs> Malia and Michelle. Uh, I know exactly who we're talking about here. On that same theme of Obama being a very normal author, you know how when your friends have a book come out and they start getting really desperate to put like Twitter content out there that's sort of about the book, mm-hmm. and you kind of give it a nice charity like on Twitter because you're like, oh, oh yeah. they're they're just they're you know they're doing they're doing what they have to do they're selling the book. Obama put a playlist on Twitter this week, which I know he has done from time to time. Sure, but it's just like oh just. Coincidentally, I have this list of songs that I really like from Beyonce and U2 that I'd like to go ahead and share with America. That was kind of funny. <laughs> one nice thing uh, about the playlist, one, I mean, it's always great to see a playlist, but also there were a lot of people who were making like bootleg versions of the playlist. You know, they're photoshopping funny songs on there or just like doing whatever with it. There, I mean, I know that the dying days of the Trump presidency are a catastrophe on so many levels but i do feel like the amount of just sort of mindless joy that people have had doctoring the obama playlist is a hopeful sign of you know where where things are going that we actually have spiritual energy to put whatever hilarious song on there you know nipsey you gotta if you're gonna put nipsey hustle on barack's playlist yeah i don't i don't know that we would have had the energy to do that six months ago how how could you comically improve on U2's Beautiful Day? I mean, <laughs> come on, man. Really? The other thing about being the president, David, or the former president, is you get a dream rollout of your book. Every time an author has a, has a book come out, they want as much publicity as humanly possible. So Obama's kind of an experiment in, it, in what if you could get any booking you wanted? Your book would be promoted in any way you possibly could dream of what would you pick well of course you would have the excerpt in the new yorker and here i want to ask you do you think david remnick edited obama for the excerpt do you think obama (laughs) got something back in track changes mode (laughs) with like one sentence highlighted that said nice i know that you you mentioned this before the new yorker is sort of known for doing this right but it but it is it's a little bit precarious you can't over edit an excerpt because it exists elsewhere Right. Uh, but yes, I'm sure I, my, I, I feel fairly confident that the edits were minimal if, if there were any at all. He said this in the interview with The Atlantic. He said there were part there are parts of the book where I just had a really nice description I wanted to leave in. And the editor was like, do we really need this? Like, do we really? And I said, eh, I like it. Sorry. That's just a pretty description. And I want to leave it. Spoken like a true writer. Uh oh, Chris Almeida, Chris Almeida, <laughs> who, who takes that stuff out for a living, is giving us a thumbs down. Listen, no one's going to, I understand the anxiety. No one, your boss is not going to come into your office and be like, why the hell is this book 800 pages long? You're fired. Right. I think, I think that, I think that it was the, pre, the president told me to leave a bunch of stuff in. I think is an appropriate answer. Uh, interviews on 60 Minutes, CBS Sunday Morning, Oprah Winfrey's Apple TV show. We had one of our uh, listeners email me and say, which podcasts do you think Obama is going to go on? It's funny, right? He could do. Okay, so I was going to I was about to say for all of you aspiring writers or writers or even publicists out there. I mean, if you're if you're ever wondering 
why somebody is going to be is doing a publicity hit somewhere. If you just want to know what the platonic ideal of a book rollout campaign looks like, look no further than Barack Obama's, and then you can kind of work yourself work backwards from there. <laughs> sort of, then you work your way down to the press box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, how, what, what do you do? What do you, I mean, part of it's the. I mean, you you would target specific audiences. I mean, I think the first question is what what podcasts are big enough if you're just really trying to sell books right i mean you go do mark maron's podcast because it's like you know a huge podcast you do and he's know. already done that one so that might figure in this too right I, I, but if you do the biggest of the big right i mean you could just you know you could go on you could he could be on any podcast that he wanted right he could but but uh the does ones... he do ezra klein's podcast to do kind of a policy centric <laughs> one within all uh, the Comedy it's podcast. weird, right? I mean, if you're Barack Obama, any podcast you choose would feel like you were doing somebody a favor, you know, and and then there'd be, I mean, if he did Ezra Klein, imagine what the, you know, crooked media guys would become, they'd be just like in his text messages nonstop. Well, he just did, he just did them though, okay, before the election. Mind. This right. is the thing, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Obama can be spread around. So it's like, you know, it's kind of thing. He did them before the election. So, but I figure you need like a political podcast. Maybe a kind of policy podcast with somebody who'd push you a little bit on mm -hmm. what you did when you were president. You also want, when you reference Mark Maron, a kind of comedy, entertainment, pop culture zone podcast. Who's your daddy? Would that be on the list? Is that the <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Obama will be appearing on the Barstool Network. Oh, who knows? Who knows? Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So you would go. I mean. Marin, Marin's easy, but I but but that makes a lot of sense. I would love. I'm trying to think of like the bit, like the old school, like the the legends of podcasting at this point. Uh, have there been a lot of Joe Rogan talk in this presidential season? No, could you do? No, could, no way. <laughs> um, well, uh, he should. There should. They should do. I mean, what what are, what are the great? What if he could he go and like? How did this get made? And just like make fun <laughs> of some bad president presidency movie from the 80s. Okay, um, sure. Um, he might have uh, one of those, right? This is the guy who did Between Two Ferns. Yeah, sure. Shane, Kevin Smith must have a politics podcast at this point, right? Somewhere in his <laughs> empire. Could we just could, could you squeeze Obama in there? Um, oh God. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I, it'll, it'll be. It's weird because we have podcasts. I mean, we talked about Rogue and all the people I just mentioned are just, you know, making millions of dollars from pushing record ones or more a week, and. uh it still kind of feels like we're the un we're, we're in the underdog industry, right? I'm not just talking about the the press box, but and part of that's that book publishing is old school, and uh, you know, it still is more meaningful to them to be on the front page of the Times Book Review than it is to be on uh, some form of new media that that uh, that reaches a billion times more people. But but also, yeah, podcasting is still just very it's it's a very it's it's sort of the wild west still. CBS Sunday Morning is his old media choice there. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is that is as sedate and calming and for a very, very particular slice of TV viewers as you could get. But yeah, so I would figure he's going to mix that with some new media stuff. I want you to help me with the numbers, David, as a veteran of the publishing industry. The New York Times reports that A Promised Land is getting 3.4 million copies printed here in the United States and another mm. 2.5 million for international readers. So is that like a Stephen King mega novel? Is that like two or three Stephen Kings? How do we understand those numbers? I have no idea. 3.4 million 
intercontinental. I mean, it's that seems incredibly high for even for Stephen King. I mean, that seems like a the the, the side the scope of like I would think a breakout novel, like your Da Vinci Codes or whatever, that sort of like catch the world by storm would be in the ten million range. But I'm totally guessing. Um, but that's how many they've sold over the course of of the right oh yeah i mean the big novels like i mean novels big books like this you know there's not a ton of downside in overprinting at the beginning your costs are so i mean the, the the unit cost gets so low beyond a certain point um and you know most of these are shipping right i mean if 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 the i mean you can get return you can always get returns but i'm guessing most of these are going to barnes and noble or amazon and they're going to be sitting in one of their warehouses but um yeah like you said the, the demand is going to be crazy for this i mean it's just going to be um i mean they're probably going to sell all those copies he sold eight hundred ninety thousand on the first day so that's a pretty good start um i do want to talk to you too about obama the writer now nobody except a handful of journalists who were paid to has read this entire book if you if you hear somebody say i read the obama book this week i i do not believe that person they have not read all 768 pages. <laughs> I read about 100 pages, which is the part of the book about the 2008 campaign. I quick, gave aside, myself, quick aside to the listeners sure. out there, if you hear anybody say no one's read it, but I've read, but I read 100 pages, they're lying too. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I did a little skimming, <laughs> a little skimming, but I'm gonna, that doesn't mean I can't make some sweeping judgments. Please here. do. Please do. A couple of things. One is, Obama is so big now, and he's been the president. He is this world historical figure. When you get to that point, some of your book is going to sound kind of like a political speech. Yeah. And this book does suffer from that at times. Um, I will also say that some of it sounds a little bit like a list that you give in a political speech. He's talking about winning Iowa, the Iowa caucuses in the 2008 campaign. And he right. says, it's due to the efforts of the following people. And then it just lists like five or six names. Like this cannot be interesting for the reader. This is like, you're standing on a stage thanking those people. Yeah. There's that. There is some, I can cuss vibes in the Obama book, which is sort of, it goes against the whole idea of speech making. But again, he's talking about 2008. I guess his campaign had leaked an unflattering memo about Hillary Clinton. And here's Obama. My team insisted the memo was never meant for public consumption, but I didn't care. Its shoddy argument and nativist tone had me rip shit for days. <laughs> Surely the first time rip wow. shit has been used in a presidential memoir. Certainly on this podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> but overall, David, from my hundred pages of reading or reading and skimming, this is the amazing thing. Obama has the quality of being an incredibly famous person an incredibly important person who can still write a really, really good book. Mm -hmm. In that quality, his book is almost British. You know how British politicians always, you know, they, they leave office and then they write these really like juicy, thorny memoirs. Mm -hmm. Obama is almost British. He really is. Like his portraits of John McCain and Sarah Palin in 2008 are great and sort of merciless. I mean, the way he has, you know, McCain calculating and, and doing this Palin, he writes, had no, had absolutely no idea what the hell she was talking about. 
<laughs> this is this is real writing. This is not something that was like, let's go the safe route and you know write something for history. This is, I'm going to give you some observations that are often pretty, pretty, pretty raw, and I I think it's kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I, I can't claim to have read a hundred even a hundred pages of it, but um, but he's a great writer, or he's a he's a he is a very insightful writer, right? Very incisive. Um, uh, it, it kind of. Maybe the, the most incredible part about his him as a writer, thinker, whatever, is how sort of self aware he is. At least you know, in retrospect, that he can that he can be that incisive about things that he lived through, but also about his role in them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting look. I mean, people are incredibly complimentary of him, and justifiably so. I, I have a hard time sort of looking reading him with clear eyes, right? I mean, he was writing. He wrote his. Well, he wrote his first book before anybody knew who he was, or at least he before he had a place on the national stage. And so, mm -hmm. without being, you know, too condescending towards anybody else, I mean that he sort of earned that one, right? And now he's, but now he's 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 regarded as a great, as a as a great writer for uh, an ex president. I think is, but but how? But is he a great writer? I mean, that's sort of the the question, right? Is this like, is he like a like an Ethan Hawke? Oh, level writer like who, who are the who are the various actors the james franco i don't know how to take that one but okay. is he is he is he, a, is he above or beyond james franco like steven or steve martin i loved shop girl back in the day is he steve martin is he better than steve martin i think so right he, these are such weird comps also a new yorker is obama better steve than martin. steve martin i'm talking about people who had other careers before they who were famous and we read them not as writers but as famous people who are also writers right it's like right. dame lillard the rapper like, do we, are we really, are we really, do we, do, can we really judge them? Can we, can we really judge them appropriately? Anyway, regardless of, of the answer to that question. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, he's, he's a fantastic writer. And I think that the length of the book, well, I mean, talking about his refusal to edit or whatever. Um, I think the more, I mean, the more we can get from Barack Obama on the printed page, the better, right? I mean, I, I understand the act of editing and 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 being succinct and everything else, but um, if he thinks something's a lovely turn of phrase that he wants to leave in, I'm glad that the world gets to see that, don't aren't you? Oh, absolutely. You'd rather have you'd rather have more than less, especially from a really really good writer like him. And I'll also say this: we've been talking about how the economy, which is torn apart by coronavirus, needs a stimulus package. This book and its sequel are Obama's stimulus package for bookstores. Mm -hmm. And that's not nothing, right? Yeah. I mean, I saw that Kramer Books was open at midnight on Monday night to sell the book, which happens often with presidential memoirs. But if you have people marching into a bookstore and putting down $45 to buy Obama's memoir, that is good <laughs> for the part of society that you and I like. That's great. And the fact that my indie bookstore here was sold out, that made me so happy. I was like, wow, they did a lot of business today and they're going to do a lot more. How much money is too much money? $45 would have been shocking uh, when we, when 10 we years kids. ago. Well, when yeah, we were 10 kids. Years ago, yeah. even. How much money? What, 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 what is the line? What, do you, what, is, what, is, what, what, what would be the line where you'd be just like, I'm not going to, even for my job, I'm not going to pay that much for the book? $100? Yeah, I mean, even over fifty seems like a lot of money for a book, for a new <laughs> book. If it's a really nice first edition, I mean, okay, but you know, I think I think if it if it had been fifty one dollars, I would have been like, really? 
<laughs> and somehow 45 was just under the line for me. <sighs> yeah, that sounds about right. Before we get out of this, do we want to have some fun with titles of previous presidential memoirs? Oh, yeah. So A Promised Land, which is the title of Obama's book, evokes Martin Luther King, who was, of course, evoking the Bible. Good title. Mm-hmm. Not every president has been quite so skillful. George W. Bush's memoir was called Decision Points. <laughs> I, st- I still don't understand. Like, I understand the the definition, but I don't understand I, when that when it it's one of those titles that makes you think you're not catching the illusion or you're not catching the literary reference or something. And then the longer you live with it, the more you're like, how has it now been three years, five years, <laughs> 10 years since that book came out? And I still have never heard the Bible verse that has decision points in it. Like, I don't like it's it, it doesn't make any sense at all. It feels like George W. Bush butchering a phrase. <laughs> maybe that's the, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's the idea. You know, it feels like that they just did that they just put a bunch of words in a hat and then they drew two words out and that was the name <laughs> like the way they used to pick names for like uh like like rap rock bands you know it's like a slipknot is not whatever let's just put the pull, pull slip out and pull knot out but the, but they yeah it doesn't make any sense at all but what are the other ones you have written down well i was just gonna say too that what a couple of times ago when i was in north texas i went to the george w bush presidential library in dallas <laughs> yes. with my mom and there was a interactive decision points feature <laughs> where you could sort of RPG the Bush presidency. I'm not joking about this. Like but it, you was got called, to... it was called the Decision Points Theater. So I <laughs> guess there's a possibility that he titled the book so that there would be a tie-in to the thing in the presidential library. Could you imagine just making the case for synchronicity for like a multimedia experience when you were writing this book? That would have been just incredible. I mean, I don't remember. I did play whatever this thing was. I don't remember it, but I'm, I'm imagining it as like you go up to a screen and it says, do you want to bring the full power of the federal government to help save the people after Hurricane Katrina? Yes. Or eh, maybe not. <laughs> like Bush did. I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. But it, it, it honestly, it really does exist. I think I think what gets me most about decision points is like you're a president, right? You can title this book. There's no there's no worry that you're going to get confused with another book. Right? No. So why would you not just call it decisions? Or why yeah. you, know, you call it like what it can be very, very simple, right? It can just be one word. You own the word. You, you have all the space you need. You have all the elbow room. You're George W. Bush. So one of Hillary Clinton's books was called Hard Choices. I, listen, I, I don't like hard choices either. Why, why would that? I mean, I understand there's a difference between choices and hard choices. But like I would just call the book Choices. But wouldn't that have been W's way of kind of dressing up a lot of bad choices? Let's just call them hard choices. Like, hey, <laughs> you you might have thought I made eight years worth of bad decisions, but they were they were tough decisions. H- hard choices hard should decisions. have been the George W. Bush memoir name. Hard choices. That that's a much more W. And you know, Hillary could have just had decisions. <laughs> Bill Clinton's memoir in two thousand four, which I was also required to read for work. This is, by the way, the third straight presidential memoir I have been required to read or skim for work. Was my life. Well, there you go. L- listen. No one else in the world gets to write a book called My Life unless you are like uh, one of the five most famous people on the planet, right? But if you're but if you're a president, you can get by with My Life. It's fine. And you should just embrace the opportunity to do something that simple and broad. Gerald Ford's A Time to Heal. Hmm. 
which is, I guess, his way of explaining the Richard Nixon pardon. Nixon's memoirs were in the arena, which is an incredibly generic presidential memoir title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and RN was another one that he put out. Uh, I went back to as far as Harry Truman, who maybe had the ultimate generic memoir title, Year of Decisions. Year of <laughs> Decisions. Now, is Year of Decisions better or worse than Decision Points? No, I don't know. Uh, maybe I just maybe I just don't understand the allure of decisions and choices. I could put some action into an otherwise pretty static narrative, I would guess. I like the RN, by the way. You know, I mean, I, I always find opportunity try to find opportunities to compliment Richard Nixon, but uh, <laughs> maybe you just go the Washington football team route, you know, with any of these. Just say, just call it the memoir by George W. Bush. So it's like the Daily Show, the book. Yeah, exactly. Just put your name on the book and that's it. And then let the let the I mean, as a former bookstore employee, that would nothing would make me more angry than something than than having to try to figure out how to key that into a computer. But that would make me want to buy the book. Just I mean, honestly, is anybody buying this Obama book that would not have bought it if it was just the photo on the cover? No, absolutely (laughs) not. Absolutely. That would make no difference in sales at all. I want to know if the Truman Library had a year of decisions interactive feature <laughs> that had like pulleys and stuff like that. It's like the old mousetrap game. It's just there's, there's a contraption at the heart of the whole thing. Cages rise and lower. Yeah, that would be fantastic. All right, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. To start off with, David, there has been this whole subcategory now for more than a week of Trump won't concede the election jokes that is just eating up Twitter. Everyone is writing something flattering about themselves and then attaching the this claim is disputed tag (laughs) to the bottom of the tweet. We've also got the one when your team is ahead early in a football game, you tweet stop the count in all caps. Mm hmm. And then finally this week, Michael B. Jordan, I guess, was named People's Sexiest Man Alive. (laughs) And Frank Luntz, yes, the schlubby pollster Frank Luntz tweeted, he only won in the eyes of the fake news media. I concede nothing. (laughs) Was was Frank Luntz actually kind of funny for the first time in his entire life? Yeah, he's, he's found his stride, I feel like. Thanks to Don Steele, Burner McBurnerson, and Zach Flood for that one. David Vulture has reported that country music superstar Dolly Parton was one of the major funders for Moderna's coronavirus vaccine, which has proved to be nearly 95% effective. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, working 95, what a way to keep us living. Wow. Wow, that's really good. We would have also accepted to the tune of Jolene, vaccine, vaccine, <laughs> vaccine, vaccine. Thanks to Gruns, David Osborne, Chris Fitzpatrick, and Eben Anderson. That's my Dolly Parton impression for the day. And finally, David, according to The Hill, the University of Texas's very own Matthew McConaughey says he'd consider running for governor of Texas. A lot of good responses. Texas would be a lot cooler if he did. Uh, McConaughey might be the first person to ever receive 420% of the vote. And my favorite, would he run as a Democrat or as alt-right, alt-right, alt-right? 
Thanks to John Paul Roman, Charles oh, Prayer the third, T Sizzle, and Michael T. If you found a candidate who has a better chance of winning than most of the Senate candidates, the Democrats throughout this year, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, David, let us do a little listener mail. And last week, someone asked us who was going to win the Time Magazine Person of the Year. And we settled on either Dr. Anthony Fauci or the coronavirus. Well, a whole bunch of people wrote in and said, you idiots, what about essential healthcare workers as kind of a group prize? The people fighting the virus. Oh, yeah. That's it, right? Yeah. Yeah, we all bang our pots and pans in appreciation. That's it. You could see also like Fauci being the cover with a bunch of the essential healthcare workers behind him. That 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 feel that feels like the winner. I can't believe we didn't think of that. Anyway, thanks for everybody who sent that in. Also, we asked what David's wrestling theme Substack newsletter should be called. <laughs> Listener football suggested Substack's Calhoun. <laughs> so reference good. to the great wrestler it's Haystacks so Calhoun. Uh, thank you very much, footballs, for that. All right, listener mail. Mike Sameta, what is a piece of media you consume to get away from the world of media you spend the most time in? A palate cleanser, so to speak. Oh, man. Uh, I think the biggest, but the, the number one palate cleanser in my life is uh, whatever my wife and oldest son are watching. Mm. Because it takes, there's no volition in it, right? You just sit down and you walk into a room, you sit down on the couch. I don't even ask what's on and just let, sto- just see how long it takes my mind to sort of acclimate to the fact that I'm watching This Is Us, you know, <laughs> with, with no preparation or that, you know, we're like halfway through Rick and Morty season four. I'm just trying to figure out how deep he's gotten. Uh, the first one was not, it was the wife, not the, not the son. Um, yeah, or or whatever it is. I mean, that's it's it's a nice way to just sort of completely take your mind off. Because otherwise, I mean, I just don't I don't actually watch a ton of TV that's not well that that doesn't that I don't watch a ton that's not kind of mandated by work, but certainly not that's not work related because work related is a pretty broad definition now, right? Um, I don't know. What about you? 
Well, children's media is actually a really great answer. Oh, you know what? That's it. I mean, I watched that. I mentioned the older, but the, yeah, the baby shows. I watch a whole lot of Sesame Street and The Wiggles and uh, a lot of. Uh, you know what's crazy? We have the Disney, the the the, the Disney uh, app or whatever, but my almost two year old has basically only gotten. I mean, only really enjoys. Well, there's some Mickey Mouse like TV shows that I'm not a huge fan of, but he loves Winnie the Pooh like the movies of Winnie the Pooh and he loves Fantasia. And mm. I know that like the classical music is supposed to be good for the developing brains or whatever. I feel like it's done good for my brain. Like just like at first you're just like, why am I staring? Like, what is this? What is it? Like, I, I remember Fantasia. I don't want to watch it 20 times, but after like 10 times, I'm like, yeah, I'm glad Fantasia's on. Like it just makes me kind of, it kind of pe- blisses me out. All right. D- Baby Einstein has made David a better podcast. So this is, <laughs> this is fantastic. All right. From James W. Dennison. Request for an analysis of Wednesday's NBA draft broadcast. What have we learned about doing such events remotely since April's groundbreaking NFL draft? Oh, wow. Um, we're talking about the, the NBA, the official ESPN NBA draft broadcast and not the various other remote mm-hmm. ones that were done. I mean, Bill and Rosillo, I mean, we had the ringer show last night was also had Kevin O'Connor and Rajat Bell, but Bill and Rosillo went in on this a little bit. Rosillo in particular, that like the degree to which now every single draft broadcast has become the sentimental story behind every draft pick. Uh, and not that actually was rough last night. Yeah. I mean, and, and instead when like, you know, and, and I think Bill made the point, like you have, you can put this on ABC, like you did with the NFL draft, you know, like put all the, put all the emotional, put all the, 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 you know, feature stories on one channel, but let, let, let give us at least one channel. That's just, just stat heads and nerds arguing about whether or not that was a good pick for that team, you know, or like speculating about trades. Like that's, really what we need. I mean, it's funny because we went, we spent so many years talking about how Woj before Woj was at ESPN, how Woj was sort of like preempted the draft broadcast itself, right? Not just by saying the picks ahead of time that, but also just by focusing on the things we care about. We care about who's going to get picked and who's going to get traded and which picks are going to get traded and everything else. And it seems like, I mean, they have Woj just sitting there and and they don't, and and they're going, but they're moving in absolutely opposite direction. Now, maybe that's the way to go because they think everybody's going to be on Twitter anyway and getting all that stuff on their own. But they're certainly not trying to fight back against that, you know. And and it's it does seem odd that. I mean, I'm not. I know that there's they have deals with the, with the NBA and everything else, but it seems really bizarre that for a television production that you wouldn't just have the inside scoop being broadcast in real time. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's too much to ask. It's it's the college game deization of the of the NBA draft and everything else. I love college game day. That is like one of the only pregame shows I've watched. I think I said that the other day on the show, but there are basically two kinds of features they show on college game day. One is somebody had some kind of tragedy happen in their family. And -hmm. the other one is the person was under recruited. (laughs) They didn't get the offer from the school they wanted to. And the reason those are the two stories they do is because these people are 18 or 19 years old. They're pretty unformed. And if you're trying to do a feature about somebody like that, you only often only have so many options. Mm-hmm. But somehow that spirit has now become this animating spirit of the NFL draft alternative broadcast you mentioned that ran on ABC last year and then last night's NBA draft. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like something like 
I, I, I think I, I take, I want to take all those stories seriously. And those are obviously that means you saw the tears last night and the, some of the pictures of relatives and things like that means an awful lot to those people, but there's gotta be a different way to handle that so that it just is, I don't know what it is, just a different approach or something or on a different part of the broadcast, something like that. I just don't know, but it just feels like a very, feels like the DNA of one show has gone from Saturday mornings to now like all kinds of places in the ESPN universe. It's true. And there's also the feeling that you get by watching it in real time. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying this is the, this is the, a better way to do it or whatever else, but you do what I was watching. I mean, I was watching last night and thinking, uh, like watching Malika Andrews, uh, Jay Williams, Mike Schmitz. I mean, we all know Jay Billis, but I, I was, I mean, I can just, um, I know that I'm going to listen to a podcast within the next month that Jay Billis or Malika Andrews or somebody does about what it was like to broadcast it. And that podcast will be better than the broadcast, which is you know, so like, weird. Just like the discussion of the decisions that were made and what it was like and what they were experiencing in real time is going to be better than what we were actually watching. And it's, it's just sort of crazy that that's where we are. Jason Gay had a great tweet last night. ESPN set looks like detention at a men's warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> wow it was that, that was a very unique set right i didn't i mean i'm sure there's been a, there must be a precursor to it but to have everybody equal, spaced out like they're at a giant desk but actually at four separate seats they look like they were in high school desks yeah like individual desks i have never seen that before i mean you can space people out in different ways but it was just really it's just really weird also that what was that like club beat that was playing every time adam silver went to the podium did you notice that they just turned yeah. up the music whenever he went to the boat? Like, what in the hell was that? Quite weird. All right. This is from Pep, David. Which late night host slash show most benefits from the election results? We have most benefits from from like the and Trump contesting the election and everything. No, I or? think from Biden winning. Because we oh. had a kind of resorting, right? Trump became president in 2016. Stephen Colbert, who people were, you know, saying, Well, oh, is he gonna get canceled? Is he gonna get replaced? by James Corden, all of a sudden his ratings went through the roof. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy Fallon, who really doesn't do politics, went way down. So what now happens during a Biden presidency? Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot of a lot of validity to the sort of comedy. There was no real comedy under under Trump uh, argument. And so I think that the ones the people that are going to that are that are going to most benefit or i mean i think like the, the, the daily show is going to most benefit i think their their stuff since the election has actually been on the whole better than what they were doing during a trump presidency they had a lot of i mean it was just too many targets i mean the target was too easy during the trump the trump years and i think just getting back to doing what they're used to doing will help them a lot uh as far as specific like the actual like the like the traditional the big three or whatever late night shows um I, I don't know. I, I I mean, I think that the freedom to, like I was saying earlier, the freedom to just sort of laugh and enjoy something that's apolitical is going to be sought after by many people over the next several months. And so like maybe James Corden is like the leader in the clubhouse for that or Fallon, you know, I mean, I don't know, but I, but it, it will be, it'll be interesting to watch. This is from Aaron Safian. Can you talk about how Ron Klain, uh, Ron Klain, that is Biden's newly named chief of staff, was once played by Kevin Spacey. <laughs> I always wonder how he feels about that. This is in this HBO movie recount, mm -hmm. which is about the 2000 election. 
I had kind of forgotten this movie existed. I had especially forgotten that Laura Dern played Catherine Harris, the Florida <laughs> Secretary of State. Yeah. 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 I mean, first of all, that those movies are always so weird. Remember that I think the late show on HBO was the was the first one of those that had just some guy that vaguely looked like David Letterman playing David Letterman. Mm-hmm. But what a weirdo genre that is. I really hope we don't get one of those about the 2020 presidential campaign. <laughs> I'm looking at the recount pictures now. Like Tom Wilkinson has like a deep tan. Who is he playing in this? It's like they is get a couple Warren of lookalikes. I don't know. I, that's no, he's playing guess. James Baker. Oh, this is just this. It's, the, it's just set against the silver hair, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, there are just, there are a lot of, there's a lot of good, you gotta, you get a couple of lookalikes and then for the TV movies, just sort of best, best actor available, right? Ed Bagley Jr. is in here. Of course. Uh, oh, Laura Dern, Laura Dern, quite a transformation there. But anyway, yeah, it, it's, a. Uh, yeah, I, I'm now, now we have to rewatch this. Great. All right. Finally, David, we got a note from a preacher in Statesville, North Carolina. <laughs> preacher in statesville north carolina did it arrive by telegram how did this uh yeah who may or may not be david's dad uh <laughs> he writes as the trump presidency draws to a close two questions for the press box what is the best name for the trump presidency autobiography and then he answers the memoir <laughs> pretty good pretty, pretty good, good. And number two for Shoemaker, what wrestler would Trump most resemble? Gorgeous George, what wrestler would you choose to play Trump in a movie? I mean, there is a lot of Gorgeous George there, right? I mean, the, 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 just the sort of the pompadour, the tan skin, and the sort of... I, the sort of... Uh, the hamminess. The hamminess of the whole thing. The pomp and circumstance. I mean, and, and, and the, you know, there's... You know, the Nature Boy, Buddy Rogers, too. I mean, there's a lot of just the old school heel that we kind of look back with a kind of glamour that, I mean, obviously, Gorgeous George was a sort of cut up in a lot of ways, but there's a lot of that old, the old blonde pompadour look was a heel look. You know, I mean, you, you put on, you, 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 you dyed your hair to sort of get a rise out of people. And I think that there's a lot of that that's, that, that's in Trump, too. Um, but, man, what wrestler should be playing Trump right now? <laughs> I don't know whether that's really possible. Oh, I mean, come on. I mean, a lot of them have died, obviously, but uh but man, there's gotta be somebody. There's gotta be a right answer to this question. All right, Dr. Shoemaker, David will be continuing his answer on a catch-up phone call late this week. <laughs> Just FYI. If you don't hear from him, call me and I'll make him call you. All right, David, when we found out our colleague Claire McNear had her Jeopardy book coming out, we had to have her on the podcast. I wanted to hear about the reporting of it. I wanted to do deep meta think on Jeopardy and trivia and being smart in America from mm -hmm. the 80s to 2020. Let's talk a lot about what it's like to interview Alex Trebek. Here's Claire McNear. What a treat to have Claire McNear here. You know her ringer pieces about sports, and you also know her pieces about game shows which she covers like sports. She has now produced her Friday Night Lights, her Moneyball. The book is Answers in the Form of Questions, a sparklingly written history of Jeopardy, its host, and its contestants, which she's here to talk about. Thanks for coming on the Press Box, Claire. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with your interview with Alex Trebek. 
the late host of Jeopardy. That still feels very weird to say, because I feel as reporters, we get to interview a lot of famous people, but you really only get one or two interviews with people who loom truly largely in your life. What yeah. was it like to interview Alex Trebek? Yeah, it was it was weird. I mean, it was uh, I, I spent a few days in early 2019 on the Jeopardy set while they were filming a tournament called the All-Star Games. And I, I got to, you know, just kind of spy on production and talk to a bunch of the contestants. But of course, I knew at some point I was going to get this sit down in uh, Trebek's dressing room with with him. And I mean, it was it was this crazy thing where it's like I, I had read as many previous clips from his past interviews as, as I could. And I mean, and he had been doing it for so long and was, was sort of just like such a good performer that he really just kind of had his talking points. He had his jokes that he told over and over and over. And so there was this anxiety of like, am I going to get him to say anything new or at least like address a new subject? Um, so I, I mean, it was, it was great though. I, I, I had been I had worried he had something of a reputation for being a little bit prickly. Like if he thought it was a dumb question, he was going to tell you. And unfortunately, <laughs> he did not tell me off because I don't know that I could have taken that on just a personal level. How eager was he to talk about his life and his career and, and really yeah. be introspective? Yeah, I mean, I I think to the end, he he kind of kept people at at, or kept the audience, I should say, at, at arm's length. I He published a memoir in July, and um, it, it was sort of pitched as, you know, him finally dropping the veil and, and um, you know, g getting honest about his life. But he kind of stuck to the talking points a little bit. He, he really was not inclined towards deep kind of personal introspection, but I think that actually made his... Um, this last year and a half as he was going through treatment for pancreatic cancer, uh, he, he was really open about that. And he was really honest about the pain and the discomfort and the uncertainties of that. And and he said uh, uh, subsequently that, you know, he, he in some ways re regretted having been open about that because it, it led to more questions and it led to people sharing their own really tough stories with him, which were hard for him to hear, I'm sure. Um, but that that was like an interesting moment in his career where he he kind of did open up. And that's part of his self-created mythology, right? He's not Richard Dawson on The Family Feud who's going out and kissing everybody on the line yeah. of contestants. He, you write in the book, he doesn't even really spend much time at all with contestants. He keeps everybody yeah. away. Yeah. I mean, part of that, specifically with the contestants, I, I mean, he is kind of barred from interacting with contestants more than you actually see in in that episode because of these funny federal laws that that dictate you know how quiz shows operate and and have made it illegal to cheat on on any quiz show and and at Jeopardy they take it very 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 seriously and it's sort of like a weird thing to encounter because it is a game but they have um their law firms that that specialize in what's called standards and practices and basically just they have um, a, a lawyer from an outside law firm who sits at the judge's table for every Jeopardy taping, just, you know, making sure everything's totally fair, that there's no illusion of any, you know, uh, favoritism towards a, towards a given contestant. But it means that Trebek didn't talk to the contestants when they were not actually taping their games. But also, I mean, he, he would hightail it out of the studio as soon as he was done taping. Like he was talent. Like he wasn't sticking around to make sure, you know, everybody wrapped up. <laughs> so the eternal question about Trebek is, was he a genuinely smart person or was he a playing a smart person on television? 
from spending time with him, where do you now fall on that question? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think it's a little bit of both in that I think to a large degree, he he really was that character. He really cared about the classics. He, you know, he loved Mark Twain. He thought that these things were important. One of the great discoveries that I made while while reporting on the book is I talked to somewhere around 100 contestants for the book. And what I heard from a lot of them is that, you know, in those closing moments of the game, as you could see Trebek walk over to the contestant lecterns and shake the champion's hand and, and kind of chit-chat, they cut the mic so you can't hear them. And often what he was doing is was just rehashing the final Jeopardy question. And 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 huh. uh, if it was a particularly tough one, he was like, oh, how did you get there? You know, how did you work that out? Did you get this hint that was in there? Or if they didn't get it and they're just totally heartbroken having just lost, <laughs> lost on Jeopardy, he's like, oh, come on. I mean, don't you remember reading about that? Like, he really did care about these things and he knew a lot of it. Um, but I think he also knew that he, w- he was expected to be this scholarly authoritative figure. And um, I, I think he, di- he did kind of consciously shape that as well. You mentioned something in the intro of the book, which really spoke to me is, which is when you were a kid, you watched your parents watch Jeopardy. What mm-hmm. was that experience like? I, for me, so much of my early experience with Jeopardy was kind of the realization of a canon just like the the idea that there were these things, all these things that I knew nothing about that, that you were expected to know, you know, a, a well-informed, educated, you know, good member of society would know about the things on Jeopardy. And I remember, you know, kind of watching in amazement as my parents did know a lot of those things. Um, but it, it had, it, there was something about Jeopardy that just had this kind of official seal of approval. It was like, this is what our culture has decided is important. So, you know, you better study up. Yeah. It is this coming of age quality, isn't it? That we sort yeah. of hit at different points in life. And I remember the same thing because I used to, my parents work. So I was often with this elderly babysitter whose name was Mama Louise. How Texan is that? Fantastic. I uh, know. But she would watch Jeopardy and I would watch her and she would get them all right. And I'd be oh, like, man. oh my God, you know, <laughs> this woman is the smartest person in the entire world. And it really is this, as a kid, you're just hoping, God, someday I hope I will be that smart and I can get all these questions right. 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 Yeah. I, I think a lot of Jeopardy contestants dream specifically of competing on Jeopardy. But I think for me, it was it was so much just like, you know, I hope that, you know, one day I'm like my mom and I just know about <laughs> Europe and you know, these things like that. I feel there's the childhood stage of Jeopardy watching, and then there's the college stage. Partly this is because maybe it comes on at a time when you're sitting around about ready to go out and the TV's on, everybody's just kind of watching. But partly too, and tell me if you had this experience, is you start to be able to get like a handful of questions and it really feels like you're on the (laughs) threshold of adulthood, but not quite an adult yet. Is that what you experienced? Yeah, I mean, you've you've just like, I think as a college student, it's the first time you've maybe started to like specialize a little bit, which is not to say that you, you know, you have your career chosen or you know what you're going to do in life or like that your college major particularly matters. Or I mean, like I studied political science. What is political science? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But but you, you feel like you now have some little quarter of expertise, maybe, where you're like, oh, yeah, see, I, I own that. I've got that categories. How old were you when you felt like you could watch Jeopardy from home and actually not be completely overwhelmed by the game? You know, that's that's tough because I think there was a, a while there um, in my adolescence and early adulthood where I kind of fell out of Jeopardy. Um, I, I didn't have cable 
in high school. I didn't have it in college, um, not right after college either. So I, I, I kind of went away from it. And um, it was only really as I started to get back into the habit of watching it pretty seriously, maybe about five years ago that, um, you know, it was suddenly like, oh, like, yeah, I get this. Like you, you just kind of get like, which is not to say that I would do well on Jeopardy. I would do miserably on Jeopardy and in fact had to audition for, for the book and it, it did not go well. So thankfully I will never be on that stage, but, um, but you just, you get it. You kind of understand the puzzle, I guess. Yeah. And and there is something about the eternal quality of it too. That's really pleasing. It's almost like you go home and the sports radio shows in your hometown haven't changed and they're still yeah. doing the same bits and yeah. talking about the same stuff. You could leave Jeopardy for years and you go back and like beyond like same. a few video yeah. clues, it's the same show, right? Right. Right. I, it, it is such a reliable routine. And I think that, um, it is so much, I, I think that most people who love Jeopardy have a kind of long running thing through different points in their lives. Like it, it often is this multi-generational tradition where you have these memories of watching it as a kid, maybe with a parent or grandparent or babysitter. Um, but it kind of moves with you through your life and you, you do watch it in different ways at, at different ages, but it, it creates this like intense, like personal nostalgia for people, I think. You write in the book about how the producers like to make Alex Trebek rap and do other things in later years. How worried were they about changing any parts of the show to kind of keep that eternal quality? Yeah, I mean, very little about the underlying format has changed. I was talking to um, to this guy named Corey Anotato who who uh, writes about game shows and is very much like a, a devoted game show fan in a way that I'm I'm not really like I I grew up with Jeopardy but that was really it um, and and he was he he brought up all these these different kind of very short lived variants of Jeopardy that that were introduced in different formats of the show like they they brought it back for one year in the 70s before before the Trebek version um began and it was still Art Fleming and you know tried a bunch of rule changes there there's been like an experiment with uh triple Jeopardy I think abroad in some some foreign version of <laughs> uh -oh. the show and there was a version with four contestants instead of three but none of them have worked and and they haven't really messed with the core Jeopardy. Um, and I think it's just that they, they know it's a really good format. Like it's very simple. You understand it immediately. I think that's why it lends itself to all these, you know, parodies of it. Um, it you know, I, 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 I think they're very protective of it. Um, but you know, introducing more pop culture is really kind of the only change that they've, they've made, I think in, in 36 years to the, to the kind of basic DNA of it. The Trebek-hosted version, as you noted, starts in 1984, and it's this kind of moment in American life where general trivia makes a comeback. Trivial Pursuit, you write in the book, was created three years before that. What? How would you describe the kind of knowledge that those two games are rewarding us for having? I mean, it's it's tough. I I think what is great about those two games is is they're not just this fussy academic trivia. Um, there is this pop culture sensibility as well. So it is, it's this really kind of satisfying um, payoff where you feel like, you know, most of it, I would say in, in both the games is, is like, oh, I remember that from school. I remember reading that in a book. But then you also get, get the reward of, you know, just being a person in culture who knows 
the cool band or who saw that movie. <laughs> and it's it's just it's two very different things. And in the actual trivia community, uh, less so now, but there has long been a kind of um, disdain for for strict pop culture trivia that it was it was kind of looked down on and seen as not not as good as those classic academic categories. And in fact, it was called trash, which I think has been. Um, I'm blanking on it, but they've turned it into a nickname, like lovingly for, for pop culture trivia in particular, but it was this kind of controversial thing at first. Charles Van Doren, who was the now the later disgraced star of the quiz shows of the 1950s, you write. So he was pitched as essentially this academic who was wandering onto a game show and drawing from his reservoir of knowledge. We now Mm -hmm. know he got some of the answers, but drawing from his reservoir of knowledge to get these right. You think the image of a Jeopardy contestant was different than that? Was there a more regular guy, regular gal quality to it? Yeah, I I think that's that's totally right. I mean, one of the like fundamental myths of Jeopardy is, I mean, it, it is a game that is built for you to play from home. But I, I think the second beat of that, if you're watching from from home on your couch playing along, is, is this idea that you too could go on Jeopardy and you could win. And these are ordinary people. Um, and that was one of the things that I wanted to to capture in the book because I think that that's changed a little bit over the last five or ten years. Um, you know, a decade ago, a, a contestant who who found out they were going to be on Jeopardy, and most most contestants have about four weeks between being invited to the show and and needing to go out to LA to tape. Um, you know, they, they might have like watched a few old episodes that they happen to have a, like a VCR or something, or or bought like an old book of Jeopardy clues that the show itself actually published. Um, but there, you know, there wasn't that much training and now it's not all contestants, but your average Jeopardy contestant, um, has probably really worked very hard. Um, and maybe they started before they were actually invited to go on the show. They do buzzer training to work on their reaction time. They, you know, use (laughs) study math to tell them what to do in final Jeopardy. Like there, there is a very kind of complicated, rigorous thing happening now. This is what you write as the money ball era of Jeopardy. So mm-hmm. tell us, what 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 does one do? Buzzer training, what do you do in terms of knowledge and, and, and preparing for the categories and the answers? Yeah, that's a little bit harder um, because there, you know, you're not going to learn everything that is going to be on Jeopardy. You're just, it's, it's, it's not possible. Though some people have tried um, with, you know, hundreds of thousands of flashcards. Um, but uh there, there are some people who've who've had kind of a computer science background and have, have basically downloaded the entirety of Jeopardy because there are these fans who maintain a database called J Archive where they basically manually enter the clues from every single episode of the show. And it's not they don't have quite every episode since 1984, but it's pretty close. It's like 400,000 clues and and use that to basically build a, a map of what Jeopardy tends to ask about and, and use that in turn to tell them what to study. And, and, and it's not just what the most common categories are, but it's also the, um, Roger Craig was a very successful contestant and he used knowledge tracking. So he was after not just what was likeliest to be on the show, but where those things came, like was opera, opera comes up fairly regularly but it's disproportionately in high value places. So it's an important thing to study if you don't know opera. And I think, of course, most Jeopardy contestants don't. Um, so it's, it's you know, it's people kind of just ripping apart Jeopardy and looking at the guts. Alex Trebek called one of the contestants who had tried to game Jeopardy a dickweed, quote unquote. <laughs> Did that affect your enjoyment of the show, knowing that people were putting that much time in on the back end? 
it's it's a different thing. Like I think I watched Jeopardy differently now knowing that. And I think, I mean, for me, I, 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 having talked to so many contestants, um, both for the book and for reporting at the ringer, um, I think I, I have probably too good of a sense of how important it is to the vast majority of people who make it to the Jeopardy stage. And, and many of them have been trying to get there for years and years and years and years. And maybe they've studied in these crazy ways, or maybe they've just kind of worshiped this show. They grew up with it and, and have been kind of obsessed with it. And I, I, um, had somebody run the numbers for me and, and nearly three quarters of Jeopardy contestants lose their very first game. Like it's, it's even, even worse than if we're just random (laughs) chance. So most people don't win at all. And it is this crushing, crushing thing. Um, so, you know, I, knowing about the semi-professionalization of the show and knowing also that it has this really profound emotional meaning for people in that kind of trivia community. There are about a hundred thousand people every year who, who take the Jeopardy contestant test trying to get on the show. Um, it, it makes it tough to watch two people lose every game. Yeah. I can so, say, see, I can see that. And that is like, if you're, if this is your dream, then you want to do everything you can possibly do to maximize yep. the dream. Yeah. It's like you get one game and it's the Super Bowl. And that's right. It. This is your life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess it also makes me sad because there is something about just the old ideal of Jeopardy that you could sort of just walk in. Yeah. And if you were fast on the buzzer and you were smart or you could recall things that you would have a fairly equal chance to win with everybody else without having this giant <laughs> training course that you have right. to go through to, to actually win. Yeah, I mean, I think that that version of the show still exists to some degree. Um, I, you know, not everybody is training this way. And there's also just so much luck inherent in in Jeopardy and, and what categories are going to come up. And um, and if you have the buzzer timing, like you don't know. I, Ken Jennings made this great comparison that I loved, which is that um, Jeopardy is like this. It, it's a, It's like an Olympic sport. But when you're watching, it's the Olympians, it's every single Olympian's first time ever doing that sport. Like Mm. you don't have any idea if you have the buzzer timing down. You could have trained for years and bought a buzzer and, you know, watched hundreds of seconds fall away from your reaction time. But you really don't know if you just have that exact Jeopardy timing. Um, So I I think that there is kind of just a really like... (laughs) surface level human element of it still. Um, and, and certainly you do get people who just kind of, you know, just love Jeopardy and just show up and, and don't really rearrange their lives for it. Yeah. Surface level is a perfect word because I feel like I haven't read William Faulkner in its entirety or really at all, but <laughs> I feel like I could recall the names of most of the novels. I would have a shot at the major characters. I would have a shot at the county where they take place. Maybe one or two facts about Faulkner's life, which I could at least guess, you know, so then I'm good, right? Like that, that's, that's the level of knowledge basically about William Faulkner that I would need to compete in Jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they probably only ask about 25 total things about him and his work, right? I, a trivia knowledge, and I, I didn't really get into this in the book, but trivia knowledge itself is such an interesting um, thing and and what I enjoyed learning was that even people who are really good at it, who've won big on Jeopardy, who are just you know and continue to compete in the trivia world and and win a bunch of events, 
for the most part, they, they are kind of the first people to say that it is not really the same thing as intelligence or, or even, you know, education. It is, it is this kind of separate skill, this like fast recall thing where it is just kind of skating around the surface of all these different things that you're shuffling through in your head and being able to do it really quickly about a whole lot of things. Like I've heard from contestants that sometimes they don't even know that they knew the answer to something. And it's only as they're watching their episode air that they're like, oh God, really? Like, I, you know, if I were to be asked that right now, I'm not sure I would know the answer to that, but they're on the stage. They just nailed it without thinking about it. Trebek died 11 days ago. And at that moment, seemingly every sports writer in America was able to put up a picture on Twitter of themselves <laughs> competing on Jeopardy. Yeah. It was almost like we'd asked all of us to post the pics of our Jason Isbell ticket stubs at the same time. <laughs> Everybody had one. Do you yeah. have a theory for what, what accounts for that? The sports writer Jeopardy <sighs> continuum? That, that is a good question. And I'm not sure I have a great answer. I think that there, so much of it is this like grazing curiosity that I think dovetails with maybe media generally, but perhaps something about sports in particular. I mean, and I mean, like, I, I really believe that Jeopardy is a sport to a large mm -hmm. degree um, and that it is competitive and it's quick. And, and I think that that I mean, that's why you see so many sports publications just cover Jeopardy. Like, it's like they don't write about any other show, maybe The Bachelor, but Jeopardy is kind of treated as as a sport. Um, which, and you know, no other game show would be like, I'm sure if you asked any of those editors, if they'd run something on like the prices, right. Or wheel of fortune, they would just be like, what, like, what are you talking about? But it is just accepted as, as a sort of sport. Totally. And SI wrote about a big piece about Jeopardy in the eighties, Franz Lids. And I went back and looked today and there were all these outraged letters to the editor. Like, <laughs> why is this in SI? <laughs> One of the letters read question. What is in Jeopardy? Answer my subscription renewal. Like people just couldn't imagine that. that SI yeah. would cover, you know, yeah, no, it's funny because my only theory about sports writers is that we are even more desperate than other journalists to prove that we are well-rounded people by <laughs> virtue of being sports yeah. writers, that we can recall the names of FDR's vice presidents and stuff like that. Right. So maybe that's part of it. Right. There, what, there is this interesting interplay too with how the trivia community looks at sports, because I think, you know, similarly, similar to, to pop culture, there is this kind of disdain for sports and amongst a lot of people who are these elite trivia figures. And of course, that, that's why those moments when the contestants on Jeopardy don't know the answers to a sports category that's maybe not conventionally really difficult always go viral because, it, I mean, it fits so perfectly with that stereotype of like the dark who, who you know, doesn't doesn't know the difference between basketball and football or whatever it is. Right. Um, but there, there is this kind of like deep seated hatred, I think, um, of <laughs> sports in, in a lot of these like elite trivia people. It's like the opera category for, for a different. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, Oh, who cares? That's not, that's not serious. I can't be bothered. We're obsessed here on the press box with Wolf Blitzer. And you wrote that Wolf Blitzer's appearance on celebrity jeopardy was quote disastrous. Can you explain yes. Why yes. Wolf Blitzer failed at Jeopardy? Yeah, so um, he had previously been on Celebrity Jeopardy, and um, and and he had done well enough that he was invited to this tournament they they held uh, about a decade ago, I think, less than that. Um, that was sort of a, a tournament of champions for um, 
celebrity contestants. They said they'd all been there before. They'd all done pretty well. And I talked to Andy Richter for the book, who who played against Wolf Blitzer. And basically, what two things happened. The first thing was that Andy Richter was really good at Jeopardy. He was really good with the buzzer timing. He was really good with the general knowledge. So he just had himself a hell of a game and and dominated the board and didn't let his opponents, one of whom was Wolf Blitzer, just ring in much at all. So so he he had um, the highest score in any celebrity Jeopardy game ever in that in that game. But then also Wolf Blitzer just it just wasn't his day. And I don't think he's ever <laughs> talked uh, talked about it on the record. I could be wrong about that, but I, I'm not sure he has um, where he just he didn't know the categories. And he had a couple, uh, Andy Richter called them brain farts, where it's just like he said something that was just kind of obviously wrong. And and you kind of think that he probably did know the right answer, but just like in that moment, it just, you know, it just couldn't, couldn't get it. And, um, and, and Andy Richter was, was telling me that, it, I mean, it was not fun. It was not fun to be part of this just like beat down that like, I don't know that there was a sense that it would go viral at that point, but like it very much did. And it is a thing people continue to love to like post videos from and, and pictures from and talk about. Cause it was, I mean, it was funny. It was funny television, but he, he was saying that, you know, Wolf Blitzer and his wife just kind of hurried out of the green room. Like it was just like a really <laughs> like painful thing for them. We're not used to seeing Wolf Blitzer at a moment of weakness. No, yeah. no, it's yeah, it's tough. I, I, I really have a lot of respect for for the celebrities who go on the show and and I guess that the the celebrities who have sort of serious public personas because if it does go badly and Jeopardy goes yeah. badly for a lot of people all the time it's going to be like a problem it's going to be a thing that that is brought up forever What did you learn about writing a book This is your first <laughs> book you plunged yeah. in you did it quickly I know yeah. that what what did you come away uh, with from the experience? I would say definitely do not go on book leave for two months immediately before a global pandemic begins. <laughs> so so my uh, my the beginning of my twenty twenty was I I went on book leave starting just a little bit after New Year's and the plan was I would hand in my my final or my first draft my first full draft with you know probably minimal revisions after that on March 15th and then on March 28th I was going to get married so I was going to sleep for a week then go wow. to New Orleans where where my fiance and I would would get married <laughs> some things changed um so yeah we ended up canceling the wedding on March 15th but I got a little bit of extra time to work on the book so that was great and uh you know then yeah, just everything else but it it was this weird thing where in like the two months before the lockdown began, I had been out of the house like twice. Like I hadn't seen anybody. I hadn't done anything. I was like, I just can't wait for March 16th. Like I'm going to get so drunk, like stay out all night. And then of course the, the pandemic had arrived. And that, I mean, that's, that's low on the list of terrible things that the pandemic right. has caused. So, not the but saddest was, story of the pandemic, but no, no, far heartrending in its own way. Yeah. And canceled yeah wedding. I, I mean, Jeez. it was, yeah. So someday. <laughs> yeah. We had Reeves Weidman on the pod earlier this week and he was saying the pandemic kind of canceled any excuse a writer can make to their editor. <laughs> Because yeah. what else are you doing? You know, right, right. Oh no, I didn't see that email. It's like, 
did. You, you, prob- you probably <laughs> did. You probably did. All right, finally, Scott Tobias, the writer asks, do you want to spitball Jeopardy host? Who is Ken Jennings? Seems like the obviously correct answer to the question, but I'll try to stay open-minded about it. Who is going to be the next host of Jeopardy? Uh, I think Ken Jennings is cer- certainly the likeliest option, and I should say I'm a little bit biased. He graciously wrote my foreword and, and yeah. talked to me a lot for the book. Um, lovely, lovely guy. Even smarter, funnier, kinder than you think he is. Um, I think that he he makes so much sense. He's synonymous with Jeopardy. Um, he's I mean he's now working for Jeopardy since the start of this season. He's a, he's been a consulting producer and helping to write. And you know I guess he's going to work with with getting contestants involved. But he's I mean he's in house and he just he has some of the category or the the qualities. I'm sorry that um, that made Trebek work so well in that he is this kind of smart, authoritative figure, but he's also like, he's really funny. Like he's good on television. Like the greatest of all time tournament was really fun. He can just get in a barb and he's, it's, it's great. Like he's great at that. Um, so it, it does just make a lot of sense. And is he accepted by the Jeopardy masses? I mean, be, because he was such a good contestant do they will they immediately say, okay, he could be the heir to Alex Trebek if anybody could. I think that, yeah, I mean, there's, there is not a a human being on earth that, you know, would not get a lot of criticism because nobody is going to be Alex Trebek. Um, but, uh, I think that most Jeopardy fans recognize like the basic truth of that, um, that he, he does make so much sense and, and probably would be really good at it. Um, but, but an interesting thing is that because he's been on the show so much over the, the 16 years since he first competed in, in 04. Jeopardy has done this really great thing where they've they've built character characters kind of out of out of people like Ken and Brad and James who come back to the show and had these long stints on the show where you root for them or maybe you root against them in the greatest of all time tournament. I think there were people who were Ken fans or James fans or Brad fans and they were rooting against the other two. And so the the weird downside of that, because I think it has made the show a lot more fun to watch is that there are people who identify as as like against Ken Jennings like they they don't want him <laughs> to succeed um so it, it's it's a really strange situation in that sense i think that you know if he is named as as the host um pe- people would would learn to love him quickly i think those those who don't already but um but it is it is tough like it's that i i would not want to be the person making the decision or the person trying to to you know, calm, calm people who are rightfully heartbroken over the the loss of Trebek. All right. She is Claire McNear. You are commanded right now to make your Jeopardy puns. By the way, how many of those have you gotten on this book? <laughs> it's a you'll few, a few. You'll notice I did not make any today. I Purposely appreciate it. Avoided <laughs> answers in the form of questions available everywhere right now. Thanks for coming on the press box, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker. Guess is a strain pun headline. Yeah. Monday's headline about data science coming to high school football was Friday Night Bites. <laughs> Today's headline <laughs> comes from good. Noah Lyford. It's from The Economist Radio. We should do a segment sometime about how all kind of old school magazines call their podcast radio. Yeah. The story is one that resonates today after that wacky Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell press conference. Team Trump, David, is filing tons of lawsuits, but they're not really getting much bang for their buck. There's a name for that principle, which I encourage you to pun off of. What was The Economist's 
radio's strain pun headline? Uh, bang for their buck. Is it is this a legal term that a legal phrase specifically, mm. or just a general one? Start with the general one here. Empty suits. Uh, uh, not they're not angry, getting return their... on the investment. Oh, return... yeah, we're getting there. Return uh, is a good word. Return uh, on uh, re- um, certain kind of returns. Oh, 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 a good return. Oh, what is it? Uh, many something returns. Many uh, mm, uh, the returns are going down. Down. Oh, diminishing returns. Okay. We start with the law of diminishing returns. So pun on and the law and diminishing return. The law, uh, the lawyers of diminishing returns. The lawyers of diminishing okay, returns. There we go. All right, that's the good. Lawyers a lot of, of help <laughs> needed there, but that was that's a good one. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. A real treat Monday on the press box. Ben Mankiewicz, aka the smart dude from Turner Classic Movies, is here to propel us into Thanksgiving week. We'll also have Josh Dean of the Very in the News podcast, Chameleon, Hollywood Con Queen. Plus, of course, more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See, oh, before we go, the answer is Greg the Hammer Valentine. 2020 Ah. Greg the Hammer Valentine. I'll see you next week, Brian. There you go, Dr. Schumacher. See you, David. (laughs) 